0: Welcome to Common Ground Church Rondebosch, a community based in Cape Town, South Africa, who believe that if Jesus is who he says he is, that changes everything. Our sermon podcast aims to unpack this reality, rooted in scripture and dependent on God's spirit. Malawian theologian Isabel Apoo Piri describes the book of Ruth as encountering a God who is concerned about the everyday occurrences of ordinary people. Ruth is a remarkable Old Testament book exploring God's sovereignty in his overarching plan for redemption, as well as his ability to be wholly engaged in people's daily trials and struggles. Please continue listening to our final installment of Ruth, a story of redemption. Evening church. Hello, Josh. (laughs) Um, Tonight I'll be reading from Ruth, um, chapter 4, verses 13 to 22, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. Naomi gains a son. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. God bless the
1: reading of His Word. Well, good evening, everybody. Great to see you here this evening. My name's Stephen. I'm part of the pastoral team here, and it's great to see you uh, celebrating with those of you that have finished exams and uh, all the best that have got uh, some more to go. Tonight is uh, the last instalment in our six-week series uh, in the Book of Ruth. Uh, We have been uh, teaching our way through this wonderful book and we have now arrived at the final instalment. And this evening, I wanna look at the passage that has just been read under three headings. Firstly, covenant faithfulness. Secondly, establishing a king. And finally, ultimate fulfilment. Let's begin with covenant faithfulness. One of the great themes that run through the book of Ruth is the theme of covenant faithfulness. In chapter 1, Ruth declares covenant faithfulness to Naomi when she says, Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if, if even death separates you and me. What we find in chapter one is that not only does Ruth commit to Naomi, but she also commits to Naomi's God. She makes a covenant with Naomi and a covenant with the God of Israel. Now, these kind of covenant commitments can be very inspiring, but they are very often tested. And in fact, the moment that Naomi and Ruth return to Israel, when they return to Bethlehem, Naomi has a meltdown. The word Naomi actually means pleasant. And when she arrives, the woman say, is that you, Naomi? And she replies, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. The Lord has made my life very bitter. I, I, I went away full, but I arrive back Empty, the Lord has afflicted me. This is a very difficult moment for the relationship of Ruth and Naomi. This would be like you being at work or university and kind of being known as an atheist when all of a sudden a friend invites you to church. And although you're known for being an atheist, you have to admit that you actually did pray during the Rugby World Cup final and we kind of won, so they've invited you to church and you think, how bad can it really be? And so you come along to church and to your great surprise, the God that you sure didn't exist actually connects with you in a personal and powerful way. And like Ruth, you surrender to the God of the Bible. In fact, somebody prays of you, you find it a very moving moment, and after they've prayed, you you kind of say, well, you know, what should I do next? And they said, well, did you come with anybody? And they said, well, yeah, actually I did. I came with my friend Bill. My my friend Bill invited me and I've come along with him. And they said, oh, great. It's great that you've come with Bill. Bill's part of a life group, a small group that meets midweek in this church. Why don't you connect with Bill and and attend his life group midweek? And you say, cool, great. And so you uh, chat to Bill about it afterwards and he gives you the address of where the meeting's taking place and Come Wednesday, you rock up at the place, you're a little bit apprehensive and a little bit nervous, but uh, the moment you arrive, you actually find people very uh, friendly and warm and, and so you kind of relax and then the meeting begins and the person hosting the meeting uh, asks you to introduce yourself and, and tell a little bit about yourself and you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm kind of really kind of surprised I'm even at this meeting, you know, to, 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 to be honest, I can't quite believe it. In fact, on Sunday, I went to the church for like the first time in like forever, and, and actually, I, I can't believe I'm even saying this, but it's true, actually, on Sunday, I became a Christian, and like everybody in the life group, it like instantly applauds, and you've kind of taken a little bit of back, you, you kind of like a deer in the headlights, and uh, kind of wanting to deflect the attention. You say, well, well, it's not really about me. You should thank Bill. Bill was the one who invited me to church in the first place, at which point Bull shouts out, "Don't call me bull. Call me miserable. The Lord has made my life miserable. My wife has left me. My kids have left me. I've lost a load of money. Don't call me bull. Call me unbearable. The Lord has made my life miserable and unbearable." Now, if that happened to you, what would you do? You, you you would like run for the hills, right? You you've kind of well, I I kind of committed my life to the Lord, but I didn't know these people were like complete nutters. Like I'm I'm out of here. I'm I'm gonna leave the twilight zone, thank you very much. I'm not gonna hang around to find out what happens next. And you would run for the hills and it would be understandable, but not so Ruth. Ruth makes a commitment to Naomi and when Naomi has her meltdown, when she is angry, when she is bitter, when she blows a top, Ruth doesn't go running for the hills. Ruth sticks in, she doesn't jump she remains faithful to her promises. Ruth's covenantal faithfulness has a transforming effect on Naomi. Naomi goes from being hard hearted to soft hearted, from unbelief to belief, from anger to shalom, from bitterness to worship, from brokenness to fullness. In fact, there is such an incredible contrast between Naomi at the end of chapter one and the Naomi that we discover in chapter four. In chapter one at the end, she is angry and utterly broken, but by chapter four, she is full and blessed, so much so that those around her rise up to call her blessed. And friends, this fullness and this abundance and this blessing in Naomi's life wouldn't have been possible without Ruth's covenantal faithfulness and loyalty towards her. And friends, this blessing in her life, this blessing at the hands of the faithfulness of Ruth doesn't go unnoticed by the ladies in Bethlehem. In verse 15, we read that they say to Naomi, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, what are they saying to Naomi? They say Naomi, you have hit the jackpot with Ruth. She is better than seven sons. Why? Well, because she made a promise to you and she has been faithful to that promise. She she said that she would stick with you and she really has. She has loved you back to life. And friends, as we've read through the book of Ruth, we've discovered that it's not just Ruth that demonstrates covenantal faithfulness, but we also see that in Boaz. Boaz has made a covenant with God and his covenantal relationship with God actually impacts every other relationship that he has. Because he's put God first, the the effect that that has is to transform every other relationship. His, His covenant with God washes up on the shore of everybody he comes into contact with. Think about the way that he treats his workers. Think about the way that he treats foreigners and refugees. Think about how the way that he uh, protects the vulnerable from sexual predators. Think about how he cares for the poor, even after a time of famine. Think about the way that he negotiates. Think about how he treated Ruth when she sidled up to the corner of his bed in the middle of the night. This man's life is defined by the covenant relationship that he had with God. Now when covenant-keeping Boaz meets covenant-keeping Ruth, what do they do? And the answer we discover in chapter 4 is they make a covenant, they get married. Verse 13 tells us, so Boaz and Ruth, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Boaz and Ruth get married, and marriage at its heart is a covenant. Now, it's not the only covenantal relationship. We've already seen that there's one between Ruth and and Naomi. There's other expressions of, of covenantal faithfulness. But here in chapter four, what we discover is that the relationship between Boaz and Ruth culminates in marriage, which at its heart is a covenant. And this marriage covenant isn't introduced here in Ruth chapter 4. It is, in fact, an outworking of God's original design that we see described for us in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2, pre fall and pre law, God establishes a creation ordinance, a creation covenant for human flourishing. In Genesis 2, 24 and 25, we read the following. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. God in His infinite wisdom has established a cradle for human flourishing. And that cradle is lifelong, faithful, heterosexual marriage. It is a covenant of marriage. It is covenantal faithfulness that is the cradle that God has chosen for human flourishing. Now this idea of a covenant relationship has fallen on hard times. Tim Keller insightfully notes that actually within our culture, there are two kinds of relationships. There is a consumer relationship and a covenant relationship. And as Keller points out, the covenant relationship is almost non-existent within Western culture. We almost entirely relate to everybody on a consumer basis. In a consumer relationship, it could be said that our needs are more important than the relationship. So you connect with a vendor to the degree that the vendor meets your need. But if another vendor comes along and provides a better service or the same service at a better price, you've got no issue leaving one vendor and joining another. So if you're chatting to your uh, friend and they said, hey, what did you do this afternoon? And... and, you said, oh, well, I did some shopping and it's like, where did you go? And you said, well, I went to Checkers." And they went, you went to Checkers? I thought you shopped at Pick and Pay. It's like, yeah, I used to shop at Pick and Pay, but now I'll go to Checkers." It's like, what? You've left Pick and Pay. Like, didn't you know, like Raymond Ackerman died. How could you do that? How could you go to another store? Like, nobody does that. It's just like, you just go wherever you want. It's like, what suits you? Who's, where's the best price? Where's the best service? What's closer to your place? That's where you go. We, we, we uh, have uh, tons of relationships like that our needs are more important than the relationship if somebody else comes along we turn tack no problem there are very few covenantal relationships in our lives. A covenantal relationship is described where the relationship is actually more important than our personal needs. The relationship is actually binding on us. And there's, there's almost none of those in Western culture anymore. As Keller points out, probably the only area where we actually have kind of covenantal relationship is uh, between a parent and a child. So if 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 you have children and uh, you go out for a drink with your mates, you say, "Hey, I need to go for a drink," and uh, they say, "Cool, let's meet at Fouries," and you meet at Fouries at six o'clock, and they say, "How was your week?" and you say, "Yeah, it it was kind of quite a busy week. You know, I had to like sort some stuff out." I just kind of, and they said, oh, like, well, what do you need to sort out? Yeah, we just kind of having a difficult time with the kids, you know, we just feel like they take, 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 take the whole time. And we just decided, like, we had enough. We, we like, we, we, we like uh, dropped them off at the orphanage. And your friend would go, like, what? You dropped your kids off at the orphanage? How are they handling it? It's like, I don't know, it's their problem now. It's not my problem. They'd go, like, what are you talking about? You don't do that. Well, they're not really meeting my need. Well, yeah, you're the parent, man. You meant to be meeting their needs. In, in our society, we assume that the parent-child relationship is covenantal, but that's pretty much it. When it comes to our uh, romantic relationships, we definitely sit in the consumer bucket, right? We committed to the relationship to the degree that that relationship is meeting our need. But if another vendor comes along, a better looking vendor, a wealthier vendor, then we've got no problems dropping the one vendor and joining the other. Friends, you have got a decision to make. Many of you are not yet married and you have a decision to make. How are you going to conduct your romantic relationships? Are you gonna go down the consumer route I relate to people to the degree that they may meet my need. And when they don't meet my need, I'm just gonna detach and go after the next one. Or are you gonna follow God's counsel? And God's counsel is the way that relationships flourish is in the context of covenant. In a covenant relationship, I'm saying the relationship is more important than my personal needs. In a consumer relationship, you say you adjust to me or I'm out of here. In a covenant relationship, you say, I will adjust to you because I've made a promise. And the relationship is more important than my personal needs. And friends, what we discover here in Ruth chapter four is that Ruth and Boaz make a marriage covenant. And it is in this context of a marriage covenant that they enjoy sexual intimacy and raise a family. Let's read the whole of verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Ruth and Boaz live out the design and the order of Genesis chapter 2. They live out the way God has ordered things, that we make a covenant relationship. And then it's in that covenant relationship that we enjoy sexual intimacy. And then from our sexual intimacy that we raise a family. And friends, it's just worth logging the foundational ingredients that God describes in Genesis chapter two. Firstly, we see that a marriage covenant involves a man and a woman. This is God's creation and God's design, and actually God's initiative. It's not like God didn't know that there were other options available. If you read the very book of Genesis, you discover that there are other options available, but they're not God's design, they're not God's plan. God's plan is for a man and a woman to be married. Secondly, we note that marriage involves leaving. It is a point of departure. Bride and groom say goodbye to their former ways of life and begin something brand new. There are new priorities and new loyalties. It is a whole new deal. Thirdly, it involves uniting. The the King James puts it, cleaving. The Hebrew word here means to both cling and to pursue, to, to stick and to follow after, to have one but to woo to cleave is deep and rich and cleaving undoubtedly leads to sexual expression between husband and wife becoming one flesh friends the the, the wonder of christian marriage is that in the act of sexual intimacy between husband and wife there is this one flesh relationship And friends, this isn't Old Testament kind of poetic language, it is an actual reality. And we know that to be the case because Jesus affirms it Himself. In Mark 10 and verse six, we read the following. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, this is Jesus speaking, quoting Genesis two, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. John Piper commenting on these verses writes the following. When a couple speak their vows and consummate their vows with sexual union, it is not a man or a woman or a pastor or a parent who is the main actor God is, God joins a husband and a wife into a one flesh union, God does that. Marriage is God's doing because it is a one flesh union that God himself performs. And then this leads to the enjoyment of sexual intimacy in a no shame environment. Verse 25 of Genesis 2 says the following, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So friends, right at the start, right at the beginning of human civilization, God creates the context in which sexual intimacy can be enjoyed in a no-shame environment and that context is the marriage context. In Genesis 2 before sinners entered the world to distort things, God tells us that the covenantal relationship is the context for human flourishing. It's the context for sexual enjoyment. It's the context for raising a family. And friends it is into this very covenantal context that Ruth and Mary Ruth and Boaz wait to enjoy sexual intimacy and raise a family. Now, some of you here may be rolling uh, the eyes of your heart and thinking, oh, how quaint, how out of touch. You know, this guy really needs to get in touch. I mean, this happened thousands of years ago. Buddy, this is, you know, 2023. This is Cape Town. Get with the program. You are so out of touch. You can't be serious that you think we should be waiting for marriage uh, in order to enjoy sexual expression. Well, listen to this extended quote by Tim Keller about why sexual intimacy sits best in the context of a covenant relationship. Keller writes the following, what the Bible says is that sex is not a consumer good, it is a covenant good. A consumer good is a way you keep somebody in a relationship because you have a need. I need to have sex every so often. Sex is the way that I feel good about myself. It makes me feel adored and loved. So I'll go out and find somebody who will meet that need. But the Bible says sex was not designed to be a consumer good. It was designed to be a covenant good. Here is what that means. See, in a covenant, when you have made a promise, sex becomes a visible sign of an invisible reality. That's why it is so meaningful. When you use sex inside a covenant, it becomes a vehicle for engaging the whole person in an act of self-giving and self-commitment. When I, in the marriage, make myself physically naked and vulnerable. It is a sign of what I've done with my whole life. By giving up my independence and by making promises, sex is supposed to be a sign of what you have done with your whole life. That's the reason why sex outside of marriage, according to the Bible, lacks integrity. Outside of marriage, you are asking somebody to do with their body what you are not doing with your life. You are saying, let's be physically vulnerable with each other. Let's do physical disclosure, but not whole life vulnerability. That's the reason why C.S. Lewis puts it perfectly. This is the perfect description of the biblical sex ethic. He says the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it to make up the total union. To have the physical union with the whole life union is a lack of integrity. If you are having sex inside a covenant, then sex becomes a covenantal renewal ceremony. It becomes a commitment apparatus. You are getting married all over again. You are giving yourself all over again. It is an incredibly deepening and solidifying and nurturing. In marriage, when you're having sex, you are saying, I belong completely and exclusively to you, and I'm acting it out. That's what sex is. I'm giving you my body as a token of how I've given you my life. I'm opening up to you physically as a token of the fact that I've opened up to you in every other way. That's how it is supposed to work. Sex becomes a deepening thing, a nurturing thing. It is like covenant cement. It is like covenant glue. It is a covenant renewal ceremony. Now you may be sitting here this evening thinking, well, Steve, that's great and that's beautiful and I get that and I love the ideal but the reality is very different to me. My life is full of disordered desires and actions. And if you're in that place this evening, I really wanna ask you to, to just hang with me in this message because in Christ there is hope and in Christ there is redemption. But what I would love nobody in this room to do is to think because of their past actions that they are excluded from enjoying the benefits of covenant in the future, or that the idea of covenant isn't for them. Because actually, if you were to reflect on the beauty and the strength and the power of covenant, what you discover is that covenant is actually built for difficulty. Covenant is built for challenge. When when did the covenant really kick in for the relationship between Ruth and Naomi? Naomi. It wasn't when things were going swimmingly, it was when Naomi had a meltdown, when she had a blowout. And Ruth said, no, 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 I've made a commitment here, I've made a promise, and I'm going to stick at it, and I'm going to be faithful. Friends, the benefit of the covenant is when the hurricane hits, and when, when things are going easy and fine, you, you kind of don't need a covenant. But, but when it gets hard and difficult, you do. Now I'm conscious that the vast majority of us here this evening are not married and I'm about to show you a clip reflecting on the marriage covenant and you may think, well, why are you even showing this in the evening? You could have just done this in the morning because I want to suggest to you that the most important time to reflect about marriage is actually when you're single and the best people to to hear from about marriage is actually those who've been married. So these are three guys who in total have been married for over 100 years when you add up all up. And they've also done over 100 years of theological reflection. So 100 years of marriage, over 100 years of theological reflection, and they're going to just give us some counsel around covenantal faithfulness. Let's watch this video together.
2: So we're all in our 60s. That's kind of the theme of this thing. And we've all been married a long time, like uh, 42 here, 37 coming up. Uh,
3: 37 37 coming up.
2: All to the same Mm -hmm. woman. That's, yes.
3: (laughs) Husband of one wife.
2: It it is a precious thing. So a key of longevity. I I read Bonhoeffer the other day, and I tweeted about it, I think. And he said... um, to a couple he was marrying, the covenant from this day forward sustains the love, not the love, the covenant. And I at 42 years of marriage feel very strongly that needs emphasizing that uh, romance and falling in love is a beautiful thing and refalling in love mm-hmm. again and again is important. And that re-falling in love after seasons of pain can be sustained only if you elevate covenant above those affections and that, that romance. So that that's kind of my main message to the younger fellas and gals who would say, what do you want to tell us about our, our marriages? And I would want to say, you have covenanted and God has created, God has united this and you have covenanted, that covenant exists It exists. Mm -hmm. Your affections, they exist and then they don't exist. You get angry and then you don't get angry. You feel so mad, you'd wonder, where did all that affection go? And that can be reborn because there's this massive
4: platform. In popular terms, I heard that on British TV when I was doing, doing doctoral studies in the early 70s. There was this old man who was being interviewed. who had been married for something like 60 years or 65 years and his wife was there with him and and, um, the the interviewer was saying, during all this time, haven't you ever considered divorce? And he bristled. Divorce? Divorce? Never, never. Murder often. Divorce never. (laughs) (laughs) No, obviously you can can make that sound ridiculous, but it's got a point. It does have a point. It, it, It does have a point. I think I agree. You know,
3: Lewis Smeads wrote an article called "The Power of Promising" uh, in Christianity Today back in the '80s, and he was already up there in age. And he, in it, he was talking about his marriage promise, and he said, "My wife has been married to seven, uh, to five men. Every one of them has been me." And he says, "The one thing, the, the thread that that kept all five of them together is my promise. My promise is, I will be there for you. I will be faithful to you." And he's trying to get across the fact that you change, uh, your spouse changes. And uh, uh, it rhymes a little bit of Stanley Hauerwas who says you always marry the wrong person, mm-hmm. which means even if you think you're marrying the right person, marriage is such a big deal that once you actually get together, you start to change each other. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you, the, the basis of your marriage can't be the feeling, and the basis of your marriage can't even be uh, we're just kindred spirits because your spirits will go in and out of being kindred. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing that keeps it is the promise. I made a promise. I've made an appointment with you in the future to be your husband every year, every year. I think you're absolutely right. It's a covenant. Uh Uh
2: Yeah, and and we've got to go because each of us has things to do here, but but I would just underline, if that sounds too duty-oriented for people, that's the ground in which the flower grows. Mm. That's the ground, mm. because if, if you're in a season right now where yeah. the flower is wilted and you think the solution is to pull the plant up, that's not the solution. Mm. The, 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 the ground of covenant, the ground of promise, mm-hmm. the ground of no divorce, maybe murder, But no that, divorce. That's, the, that, mm. that's, that's the ground where it can, can reflourish, and it, and it does. I just testify from 42 years that falling in love with my wife, again and again is a very beautiful thing.
4: And ideally, that is nurtured, at least in part, by um, grounding marriage itself in Scripture in a in a big framework. Yep. Um, we're made by God and for God. Uh, this is His design, not my design. There is a huge typology between husband and wife and Christ and the church. We're saying something about Christ and the church by the way we act. So, in other, in other words, the renewal of the covenant is not merely... A I use merely advisedly, mm-hmm. uh, an act of will. It, yeah. it is it is itself grounded in what the new covenant is about, and what that's the gospel right. is about, and who that's God right. is, and so that's on right. as well.
2: We are we are testifying by our perseverance in covenant keeping, something about Christ the and the keeping. church that's right. in covenant with each other. That's exactly we lie right. about Christ, and we lie about what the church is obliged to do if we. Yeah,
1: leave I think our, that's right. Talking more done. about marriage, I'm gonna cry. <laughs> so, firstly, covenantal faithfulness. Secondly, establishing a king. It is possible to make the marriage of Ruth and Boaz the final point of our series, but to do that would be to miss the grand narrative of this book. To only focus on Ruth and Boaz would be to miss the whole picture remember the context into which our story unfolds. The final verse of Judges reads as follows. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. As I've said previously, for many, this is a description of utopia, a leaderless environment where everybody can do whatever they want but from a biblical perspective, this is actually a state of disorder and judgment. It is a desperate state crying out for God's dramatic intervention. And the grand arc of the book of Ruth is how will God establish a king? How will he provide godly leadership for his people And the answer to that question is found in the final verses of this book. God uses the love story of Ruth and Boaz as a way of establishing his king. Look at verses 16 and 17. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And that is King David. What we discover as we read the final verses of this book is that the life of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz have been incredibly interwoven with God's great and eternal plan. Because David is King David, we see that Ruth and Boaz' story is actually about a much greater story. It is about God restoring His purposes. It's about God establishing a king. It's about God bringing in leadership after His own heart. When we read this book, we see that Ruth and Boaz made actual decisions and choices, but actually their choices and decisions ultimately served God's greater and grander story. There was a greater reality being played out and this greater reality didn't diminish their decisions, it actually enhances them. In the providence of God, their actions and decisions become the fulfilment of God's plans and purposes. Friends, can I ask you this evening, which story are you writing? Are you only writing a story about yourself? Are you the only character in your story? Is your story only being played out at a human level? Or have you surrendered your life to God? Have you given your life over to Him? Have you connected your story to His story? Have you placed your life in His hands? Because friends, when we do that, when we place our lives in God's hands, what we discover, like Ruth and Boaz, we find out that God ends up using our lives to be weaved into his much greater and grander tapestry. The words of our lives don't just appear in our biography, but in his great grand story. Friends, when we take our lives, the, the five loaves and two fish of our lives, and we put it in the hands of God, what we discover is that God multiplies it in incredible ways. Ruth and Boaz have obeyed the father of Jesse, the father of King David. The king is established. Their lives are caught up in God's great plan. And friends, what could be more dignifying than for our lives, not simply to be blessed, but for God to use our lives to actually write His eternal story? It truly is amazing. So firstly, covenantal faithfulness. Secondly, establishing a king. And finally, ultimate fulfilment. Now, if you've been tracking me with me this far, you, you may have a dilemma, and you'll Dilemma may be this. You you may love this vision of covenantal faithfulness and love this vision of God restoring uh, godly leadership and yet you can still be disillusioned. And you can be disillusioned firstly with yourself because it's one thing to admire something, it's quite another to actually live it out. Left to ourselves, uh, we... uh, struggle to live up to our own ideals, let alone God's ideals. We, we find it very easy to live our lives in the gray. And so it's very possible when we reflect on covenantal faithfulness actually to be disillusioned with ourselves and think I could never live up to that, that the, the standard is too high. But if we're honest and reflect on this, it's not just that we're disillusioned with ourselves, it's also possible for us to be disillusioned with God-appointed leaders. Yes, God establishes a king. Yes, David is a king after God's own heart, but yes, David is deeply flawed. And the Bible doesn't airbrush those weaknesses. David is flawed and so is the next king, King Solomon, his son. And when you crack open one and two kings, it's a hard read because as Jamie Cullen puts it, the hems of our heroes are frayed. When we look at the leadership on display, we can sigh and our hearts can sink because we long for a better king, for an ultimate king, for a true and perfect king, a king whose hems aren't frayed and yet a king which is compassionate enough to deal with our imperfections and brokenness. Is there such a king? Well, Matthew Chapter 1 verse 1 reads as following, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We need a kingly saviour, we need a Messiah, we need Jesus and friends, Jesus is the ultimate king and he's the ultimate king because he is nothing less than God himself who's has become flesh and dwelt amongst us. Jesus is the ultimate king because although he was tempted in all ways, he is without sin. His hems are not frayed. Jesus is the ultimate king because he is the only person who has fully submitted to the Father. And this Jesus, this ultimate king, this divine king, this perfect king, when he comes incredibly, he doesn't come to judge us and condemn us, but he comes to usher in a new covenant In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, we read the following. Paul writes, For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, Jesus is the ultimate king. Jesus is the perfect king. Jesus is the divine king. But Jesus, the divine, perfect, ultimate king, was broken in order to deal with our brokenness. Jesus, the perfect king, was broken Because we are all covenant breakers. He needed to be broken in order to create a new covenant. This new covenant involves Jesus who knew no sin becoming sin for us that we might receive his righteousness. Jesus resolves our dilemma. He is both the king that we've always wanted but have never had. And he is the king that we need, the king that we can respect forever, but also the king that will meet our greatest need, our need of sin and brokenness and covenantal unfaithfulness. Hebrews 9 verse 15 summarizes it beautifully when it says, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant, Friends, Ruth leads us to King David, but King David isn't enough. We need Jesus. And friends, when we place our lives in the hands of Jesus, what we discover is that His hands have scars and they've got scars because they have had nails driven through them for us. Friends, the ultimate message of the book of Ruth is not be like Ruth or be like Boaz, but rather we need Jesus. We need a true and ultimate King who will usher in a new covenant. Friends, Jesus didn't come to us and say, hey, I'm willing to really be committed to you and live my life for you and may nothing but death separate us uh, from each other. No, 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 Jesus comes to us and He says, I won't even uh, allow death to separate us. I will be separated from the Father so that you can be eternally welcomed in. I will die so that you will never be abandoned or separated. I will demonstrate my love in the that while you are still sinners, I will die for you. I will die in order to love you back to life. Friends, Jesus is the true and better Ruth. He is the ultimate King. He is the one that was broken in order to usher in a new covenant, a covenant of forgiveness and a covenant of grace. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this evening and we thank you for your love and for your goodness. Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to tell us the truth. And Lord, we thank you that in your divine and infinite wisdom, you have chosen covenant to be the context into which human flourishing occurs, into which sexual intimacy can be enjoyed and the context into which Children can be raised. Lord, we confess to you this evening that we live in a society who has utterly rejected those ideas that conduct their romantic relationships entirely on a consumer relationship basis. And Lord, we ask you that in your mercy and grace that you would renew our minds. Lord, we confess to you that left ourselves, we will just get swept up in the cultural consensus, if we don't have revelation from you. Just while we're here and we're in the presence of God, if you know that actually the way that you think and the way that you acted is just an expression of a consumer relationship rather than embracing the beauty and the wisdom of a covenantal relationship. Why don't you just, while we're in the presence of God here, just say, sorry, Lord. Sorry, Lord, that I've just got swept up with the crowd, that I've just believed lies, that I think that the way to flourishing is just being selfish, using people for my own pleasure. God, that isn't your inheritance for me. That isn't your plan and purpose for me. But thank you, Lord, you're a new king and you're bringing in a new covenant. So I wanna submit to you, King Jesus, and I pray that you would forgive my sin. We thank you that in your word you say that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just and you will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Lord, more than just forgiving us, Lord, I pray that you would grant us illumination. I pray that you'd grant us revelation. Lord, I pray, may we see the beauty of your ways because your ways are about our flourishing. It's about our good. It's about our blessing. And Lord, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the better way that you have planned for us. Lord, I pray that you would disarm the lies And show us the beauty, a beauty that will bless us, but more than that will glorify you and will be used in your great grand story of glorifying your son, Jesus. We ask this in your name and for your glory and all God's people said.